0: Across the UK, online and on DAB The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio The Big
2: Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick
0: (laughs) Dangerous mid-morning debate with the Great Dictator
2: The Independent Republic of Mike
1: Graham on Talk Radio
3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio and for the very first time live streamed as well on YouTube and on Twitter. You might enjoy listening to me. Uh, Now you get a chance to look at me as well while I'm actually talking. Some of you may like that, some of you may not. The point is that we are doing it now from this point on and for the rest of time. So welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. An uneasy calm is hanging over the Middle East at the moment this morning as dire warnings of dark days continue to emanate from Iran following the drone killing of the country's hardline military military leader on Friday, Major General Qasim Soleimani was travelling in a convoy at Baghdad airport when his car was struck by the deadly drone missile controlled, rather amazingly, from a little room somewhere in Washington DC. After his funeral yesterday, Iran was still promising revenge, but President Donald Trump has vowed to hit the Islamic Republic even harder if they attempt any attacks on US interests in the region. And today, he's also threatening sanctions on Iraq after their parliament voted to kick all foreign soldiers out of the country, including US and British forces. We'll get the military view from Colonel Richard Kemp, former commander of UK forces in Afghanistan, and the view from Tehran itself with Maya Tuzi, who says not everyone in the country is sad that Soleimani is no more. Meanwhile, the doom mongers are still predicting World War Three. We'll be keeping you across all of it, of course, as it happens right here, right now, live on Talk Radio. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, we'll also get the latest from the Labour leadership race, as the opposition prepares to return to Parliament with a plan to revitalise itself and get itself a new boss and it's also divorce day so we'll be celebrating along with any of you that wish to do so 0344 499 1000 plus we'll get the lowdown on another british night of triumph at the golden globes in hollywood not least the eviscerating speech aimed at the lovies by ricky gervais you are listening to me mike graham and watching me right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio
2: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Now, the front pages this morning are all absolutely full of stories about Iran. We will kill UK troops, warns Iran, on the front page of The Times. The front page of The Daily Telegraph. Do not dare to strike at us, Johnson warns Iran. The Daily Mail says uh, the Prime Minister's walking a tightrope over Iran. And, of course, predictably, The Guardian, uh, quoting from Iranian sources, saying pressure grows on Donald Trump to justify the Soleimani killing. Well, I'll tell you how you justify the Soleimani killing. He was a bloodthirsty, ghastly, terrorist-inducing individual who spent most of his time plotting the deaths of thousands of people and the rest of his time making sure that that was carried out by many of his terrorist operatives across the Middle East, from Lebanon uh, to Israel to Iraq to Iran uh, and points north, south, east and west. Let's talk to Colonel Richard Kemp, a man who probably knows a thing or two about uh, this man Soleimani. Uh, Colonel, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Suleimani first of all, because of course uh, we've heard uh, from the American administration that his links to terror go all the way back to nine eleven.
4: Well, I think you described him extremely well. I couldn't really add much to what you just said about him, but uh, no, he's he's um, he is a, a very effective terrorist commander designated terrorist let's not forget he's described by some in the u.s and some over here as an iranian government official but that doesn't really describe him he's a terrorist organizer he's been he's been involved in the organization of terrorism for 22 years now um and has been the well before that in fact but he's been the commander of the quds force for 22 years um, which is the Iranian organisation that, that um, is relatively small? It's only about fifteen thousand people, but it's responsible for for organising, planning, and coordinating the use of various proxy militia, terrorist groups, etc., in different parts of the world. And that's what he's been doing. And he's been, some of it's been very effective. A lot of it has been an absolute disaster from Iran's point of view. Um, and people talk about how he was involved in helping us fight the islamic state well he was but he also was responsible to a very large extent for creating the islamic state in the first place because it was him and his organization that put enormous pressure on the iraqis uh, when the americans were pulling out to uh, to stop the very successful action they'd taken to bring sunni militias on side to help fight the uh, al-qaeda and islamic state partly arose from that so he's He's not the genius he's cracked up to be. He's got a hell of a lot of talent, Mm. but he's he's also a failure as well.
3: But he seems to have wielded an awful lot of influence in the region as well, because I was reading a piece over the weekend about how there was a a sort of an email or a letter uh, which came from him and emanated uh, out of the White House, I think in a previous administration when Barack Obama was president, in which he more or less took credit for running terror cells everywhere in the Middle East, from Lebanon uh, all the way through to Palestine, uh, to Iraq, to Iran, uh, and, uh, and even... Even in, in in towards sort of Yemen and, and Saudi,
4: absolutely, and that's he was right. to Take that credit. He was, he if, if you could call it credit, he's a um, he he had probably the greatest influence of anybody on Iranian foreign policy uh, in in pretty much every sphere. Certainly in the Middle East, and and but also elsewhere. Um, and he he also of course on on defense and military matters. He was probably the second most powerful person in Iran to the Ayatollah. But, um, uh, you know, he, 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 he wasn't, you know, that doesn't, that's not necessarily reflected in the, in the position he held. He was number two or effectively one, one of the subordinate commanders of the IRGC. But he was a personal advisor to uh, the Ayatollah, as well as being the head of the most effective military organization they have.
3: Yes, absolutely. And as far as what they are willing to do now and what they might do, obviously we're hearing an awful lot of uh, sabre-rattling coming out of Tehran at the moment, not least from members of, uh, of, of his family saying that there were going to be dark days ahead for the United States of America. Trump is holding the line pretty firmly here. It seems as though he's taken a decision which previous pr- uh, presidents didn't want to take for fear of what would happen afterwards.
4: Yeah, I think what President Trump's done is long overdue. And of course, you know, many, it's much easier for a political leader to appease and to take no action against somebody who wants uh, to cause you harm uh, it's easier to kick down the road and let your successor or his successor deal with it well fortunately trump's grasped the, the horns on this and um he, he you know there's the, the probably going to be rocky days but i but we're not going to see world war three as people say as you mentioned earlier people are getting frightened of that it's not going to happen we, how many times have we heard world war three is about yeah. to happen in our lifetime it doesn't and it's not going to resolve this and there's reasons for that one of which is that um and probably a salient one is the iranians couldn't possibly afford for it to happen because they would be absolutely annihilated by the u.s forces who are vastly more powerful than they are and their allies um and uh, and so they'll be looking for more calibrated response they'll be looking maybe to attack shipping in the gulf as they've done before they'll be looking perhaps to assassinate american military or political figures or diplomats in various different ways um they will obviously want to make certain it's not a disaster and the person masterminding all this of course is uh Soleimani's successor who has been his deputy for many years now and is also pretty adept but he will not want to uh, go off a half cock and do something that doesn't work because that will humiliate Iran but of course it's always possible that whatever they decide to do um including, you know, kidnapping, possibly uh, blowing up, attempting to blow up an embassy, all of these things. Um, it's always possible that, that, that there could be miscalculations and it does actually escalate beyond where they want yeah. to take it to.
3: And, I mean, I presume uh, ships in the Gulf are going to be at risk as, as they as they were before. Um, you would imagine that maybe Saudi oil terminals might be uh, a part of their plan as well?
4: Yeah, I think that's a good point. The, Saudi, the, the ships in the Gulf, yes, and, and they... Yeah, the, our two Royal Naval ships out there have been reassigned to protect shipping going through that area, uh, as they were before. And um, the the and Saudi is a very vulnerable vulnerable target, which has been attacked successfully before, uh, and and could be attacked again. Although I think it's it's probably more likely as an act of direct retaliation that the Iranians will want to hit a specifically American target for for obvious reasons. And and although you mentioned you did mention just now that. Um, that the Iranians have threatened the British. What they've said there is that if, they, if, if the British get in the way or if they're collateral damage, then they don't really care. That'll happen. But I don't think they'll to really target the British. But it's possible they, they could do if the
3: Americans yeah. do harm I mean, there's an interesting uh, development this morning. I don't know whether you've seen this, but Hassan Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah in Lebanon, says that he wants to be very clear that we do not mean to harm the American people. Across the region. He says there are American citizens, traders, journalists, engineers, and doctors. They cannot be touched. Any harm to US civilians will only serve Trump's agenda.
4: Yeah, of course, you know, that's what he says now. But <laughs> Nasr- Nasrallah is um, in charge of a, a notorious terrorist organization, Hezbollah, which has murdered many, many civilians of all different sorts. And, 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 and that also included a large number of American soldiers in Lebanon in 1983. About 100, I think it was, American Marines mainly, and and a lot of French soldiers. Um, uh, He doesn't really care about any of that any more than the rest of them do. He might think it's a good thing to be saying, but Mm. but I don't think any civilian should consider themselves, uh, you know, any American civilian in particular, particularly those who could be associated with U.S. facilities and diplomatic facilities out there, could consider themselves safe from Mm. the possibility of attack. But I would stress that we're not going to see a widespread massacre of Americans in the region. We're going to see an attempt to make a, at least one or more decisive attacks against America, which, which will restore, in their eyes, will restore Iranian prestige. And, of course, their main target for this is the Iranian people, because they've got big problems. They've had huge demonstrations against the regime in recent months. They're terrified of the regime being brought down. And, of course, the killing of Soleimani weakens the regime in the perception Mm. of the Iranian people and and gives more motivation to their their enemies internally.
3: Also, as I said on Friday, the fact that he could be got at in the way that he was got at by a drone strike from a very, very long way away, very pinpoint accurate, by the way, uh, not only knowing precisely where he would be at any given time, but knowing which of the three cars he was going to be in. If you're an Iranian, um, you know, would-be sort of, you know, revenge merchant, you're going to be thinking about that, aren't you?
4: Yeah, I mean, American intelligence access to uh, Iran is is not so bad, particularly outside the country itself mm. in, in Iraq. But and that's obviously not just American. It's, you know, Israeli Israel has got a huge intelligence access to Iran as well, which it would share with America. So, um, yeah, I mean, they they will be fearful, and and his his message that he's going to be gunning for the the top people, not just the the foot soldiers, as he, as he said as well. I think yesterday. Uh, is an important one for Iran, and and the fact that he's identified fifty-two sites, um, which is, is a message. It's not, you know, it's, it's partly, partly rhetoric, but it's also a message that the Iranians will understand, and 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 it, it will, I think it will have an effect in that country.
3: Yeah, and what about the business with Iraq as well? Because I think a lot of people—and I count myself in this—because I'm not by any means a national security expert. You know exactly how much kind of collaboration was going on between Iraq and Iran? Because obviously, uh, when the uh, when the drone strike actually did happen, um, it was it was it was while he was in Baghdad.
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a lot, and the, you know, the Iraqi government has been pressured. Um, a huge amount, sometimes willingly, sometimes not, by Iran and particularly by Soleimani in the past. Mm. Now his successor, no doubt. Um, and they, you know, they, they've a lot of the that that uh, against our interests and American interests uh, are as a result of um, of Iranian pressure. And you know, they've. For example, the the Iraqi prime minister who uh, stood up in parliament recently and called for the Americans to be chucked out of the country, yeah. he is a close friend or was a close friend of Soleimani. He's under the influence of Iran. Whether he thinks that America should leave or not it isn't really Im- important. He was told to say that by Iran. Right.
3: And, of course, that was going to be my next question. You know, British troops, American troops in Iraq, uh, Donald Trump's basically saying we're not moving anywhere until we get a load of compensation for building this great air base that we've got. Um, and if you don't give us any money, we're not going.
4: Yeah, I think I think uh, it's not an unreasonable point to make. You know, again, I, you know, the, the, the Iraqi parliament... Um, vote on this to say that america's got to get out was not binding on the iranian government it wasn't a a, it wasn't legislation it was just a resolution uh it doesn't have to be carried out i think the chances are it won't be carried out although iraq will now be be piling on the pressure to iraq to expel america because of course you know, they would see that as America humiliated and that would be part of their retaliation. Mm. So uh, that, that, there would be a lot of pressure to do that. But, it, but that pressure, I think, should be resisted for two reasons. One, because um, America and British troops also and other allied troops are there for a very good reason, which is to help the Iraqi forces counter the Islamic State. We know what happened last time. We left completely. And that was the, the uprise of the Islamic State. Yeah. Um, which caused, you know, huge numbers of death and suffering throughout the region. And the second reason why it's important America doesn't go certainly immediately is is because, of course, that does hand at least a propaganda victory to Iran. Um, So we'll have to see how that that unfolds. I mean, I guess it
3: depends, does it not, as well on on American sort of um, domestic policy to some extent, because there are those who think Donald Trump is doing what he's doing as a kind of a winding up of his first administration and a movement into the second one so that he can say, well, look, we're very strong abroad. Uh, We don't mess about with these people. But if the tide turns and if people in America appear to, say, bring the troops back rather than see them getting killed and shot at, then that might change everything.
4: Yeah, of course, he he, Trump ran on a platform partly of we're going to bring the troops home. And I think he would be very happy to bring the troops home from Iraq. But there's a difference between him bringing them back uh, in his own time frame and being kicked out of the country. And I think that would be important for him to avoid that. But, of course, you know, of course, the next election at the end of this year is uh, is a major calculation in, in every decision he takes, as it is for every leader in the world. Mm.
3: And also, what about the other sort of dangerous parts of the region as well? We've seen Turkey uh, over the last few days getting a bit more closely involved in Libya. Obviously, there's still a bit of tension between the Turks and the Kurds and northern Syria and that border as well. So, I mean, you know, we as the West would probably want to keep a presence there, would we not, in order to sort of police a bit
4: of that? Well, I think we have to Certainly, we have to know what's going on there. And if you, you mentioned Libya, one, one sort of relationship there to note is, I think, the, the Turkish-Egyptian uh, relationship, mm. because Egypt is, is strongly opposed to Turkey getting actively involved in Libya. So we could see some friction between those two countries, some more friction. But, um, yeah, we ha- we have to know what's going on. And we have to be, I think, we you know, we have to, be ready uh, in, in a number of ways to, to to play a role in it, and one one is diplomatic, of course. Another one is to support security forces of the countries that we want to support, and third is our own military intervention if necessary. Yeah. And, and the reason all this is so important, people, you know, you often hear people say and understand that Well, let's get the hell out of the Middle East, leave it, leave them to themselves. But let's not forget, pretty much everything we do, including what we're doing right now, talking on the radio and on the phones, etc is enabled by oil. Oil, a lot of it, most of it perhaps comes from the Middle East. And yeah. we, we, you know, until we find something to replace that, it's, we, we do have vital national interests in the Middle East. People well, of course, yeah. And also, I
3: mean, given what uh, directions the Middle East has taken over recent times and the influence that that has had on terrorists that may or may not be homegrown in this country and other parts of Europe, you know, you can't just leave it alone. I mean, we don't live in a world like that anymore.
4: You're right. And one of the other factors... It isn't just oil. Another major factor is, as well as the uh, the influence on the terror situation here, is refugees. Yeah. you know, one of our most important priorities is to contain, is to do our bit in containing situations that could result in massive refugee movement, which mm. of course is something we do not want in Europe. We've got more than enough. Um, refugees here, that many of whom should be going back as soon as they can. Absolutely and right. We don't, we don't need any more.
3: And what did you make, finally, a Colonel of Boris Johnson's um, part in all of this? A lot of people were critical of him for not coming home early from his holiday, uh, not saying anything before yesterday. I mean, I'm not one of those people. I think that, uh, you know, again, we live in a, in a global world, which is run 24-7 on uh, uh, computers and on electronic devices. People don't need to be in specific places all the time, do they?
4: No, I think it's always it's always a, a dilemma for a prime minister or head of state if he's on holiday when a crisis occurs. Whether he would appear to be panicking by rushing home yeah. soon, or or you know just doing what he does and comes back on his schedule. But of course, he will be have been monitoring and kept informed and passing instructions from his holiday location. Um, I think he's handled it pretty well. I you know I, do, I believe maybe the foreign secretary could have made a stronger. Statement in support of the US at an earlier stage, and of course we did get criticised along with France and Germany for not sticking up for America as strongly as we might by, by the US. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a relatively minor criticism. I think his his, his comment yesterday was pretty balanced. I, you know, I, one thing I do think and believe, and and I think he probably would share this, is that we're not we're not on a neutral line here. We're not walking a tightrope. We are on the side of the United States of America. We're opposed to Iranian terrorism. And I think one of the complications that he has is, as always, with the EU, because they, he will have wanted to agree at some form of EU consensus about the line that was going out from EU countries. Um, and that's been that's a common way of dealing with foreign affairs. It's uh, ho- Hopefully, it's going to end once we get out in a few days' time out of the EU. We don't have to worry too much about it, but I'm afraid that as we then enter a phase of of lengthy negotiations, we'll probably still be worried about our direct relationship with the EU and we'll still have to, you know, try and compromise with them sometimes, which leads us to a sort of weaker stance than otherwise we might take.
3: Well, it does indeed. And also, of course, the Iranians are now saying that whatever the deal was with the Europeans uh, and the Americans over the uh, nuclear proliferation business, you know, that's all over and done with now. So they feel uh, as if they've got carte blanche to kind of develop uh, more nuclear power.
4: Yeah, um, and of course, the nuclear power they want is for weapons, not for energy. Right. And, um, the the, uh, the, the their, their latest stance on that is entirely predictable. They've 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 taken the line since uh, President Trump pulled out of the nuclear agreement. They've taken the line that they would abandon, progressively abandon their commitments they made, which is is you know it goes to show that. You know whatever the other side say, they never had any intention of sticking to it, and they didn't stick to it. They were they were duplicitous in their um, in their implementation of the agreement so far. Um, and in any case, the agreement was going to run out in a few years' time. At which point, they'd legitimately be able to have nuclear weapons, which was a major problem of that agreement. And so I, I think, yeah, they will try and do that, but now they're because Trump pulled out of the agreement, they will no longer be in a position where they will legitimately be able to make nuclear weapons in a few years, and they will always have to be looking over their shoulder at the possibility of us incoming against that, which I, I think will happen if uh, if they get towards developing nuclear weapons.
3: No, quite. Richard Kemp, Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us once more. We want to hear from you, of course, on this because not only uh, are we live streaming this, but we are going to be live streaming the whole show. We're live streaming your phone calls as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, We will, of course, be bringing you all the things that we always bring you. Coming up a little bit later on, uh, we'll talk about the Golden Globes. Josh Rom's going to be joining us. Rose McGowan, by the way, uh, the Me Too, hashtag Me Too actress, has tweeted this. Dear Iran, the USA has disrespected your country your flag your people 52 percent of us humbly apologize we want peace with your nation we are being held hostage by a terrorist regime we do not know how to escape please do not kill us i mean for heaven's sake what is going on in america this is talk radio
0: millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are live streaming the show from this point on. So not only uh, can you now listen to the radio station, uh, you can watch it as well. We're on YouTube right now. Uh, We're live streaming on Twitter as well. Uh, You may not be able to watch it all the time, but, you know, uh, have a look. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio. Uh, We'll be on Facebook soon as well. Uh, You can leave messages on the YouTube channel, of course, too. Uh, We will also be coming up uh, with more television ideas for you because we're going to be doing Off Air, uh, my show which has been going out every Monday, since just before Christmas. We're doing a new one uh, this afternoon. Andre Walker's going to be my chief guest and then on Tuesday uh, we're going to be doing Plank of the Week which is of course uh, an idea uh, that I came up with over the Christmas holidays about there are so many planks. We've just seen Rose McGowan there. She's going to be entered onto the list I would imagine. So many people coming up with so much rubbish. People like and Maugham the barrister beating a fox to death with a baseball bat over Christmas. I'm sorry to keep going on about it but you know uh, he's one of those guys that you can't stop talking about. So uh, that will go out every Tuesday as well and tomorrow Tomorrow we're going to have two guests on that. Russell Quirk, uh, our very friendly and quite grumpy property expert who appears on Julie Hartley Brewer's show an awful lot. And also Nunziata and Mogg, formerly Brexit Party MEP uh, for the cool. south-east of England, uh, now an independent MEP. Uh, but also somebody who's going to be giving up that job as we leave the European Union at the end of January. Now, let's talk about the Labour Party, because John McTiernan uh, is Tony Blair's former political uh, secretary, of course. He was with us on election night, uh, which was possibly one of the most disgraceful performances by any Labour leader of all time. Jeremy Corbyn getting the worst election results since about 1935. John, uh, very good morning to you. I hope you've recovered from that particular evening.
1: Uh, well, I have for the Labour Party. Hasn't.
3: <laughs> no, it hasn't. I mean, I, have to, I found myself yesterday watching Andrew Marr interviewing Jess Phillips and wondering to myself, isn't it interesting how much time they're now getting to talk about what's going to happen to the Labour Party and who's going to lead it uh, when they're effectively quite an irrelevant organisation at the moment?
1: Well, given the way that our politics has shifted dramatically back and forth uh, for the last four or five years, I think. Yes, it looks as though um, Boris Johnson set fair for five years, maybe even a decade of leadership. Uh, but equally, the, the unexpected is what is now got to be expected in politics. So I think it doesn't matter who the Labour leader is. Choose the wrong person like Rebecca Long-Bailey and definitely the Labour Party's over, finished and done mm. with. Choose the right person like Jess Phillips and you know, a few performances of her against Boris Johnson at PMQs. Um, and actually the mood might shift and the public might shift. Particularly if Boris finds it harder to deliver for the Labour seats uh, that are now uh, now have Conservative MPs. I
3: think if you uh, were going to be strategic, you'd certainly say putting a woman up against Boris Johnson is a better bet than putting a man up against him, because Boris, whatever his uh, sort of strengths and weaknesses are, is clearly a little bit more uneasy um, insulting a woman than he is insulting a man, for good or bad.
1: I think that's true, and I think also uh, the thing about Jess is she's quick-witted. Um,
3: Well, she says she's quick-witted. I can't say I found her particularly quick-witted.
1: I think she's she's she is funny. She's fast-moving. She quite often reframes the question to make it into a different one. Uh, I think that's you know when like when. When um when somebody asked her, "Have you ever kissed a Tory?" she said, "I never. for ID people I knock them." <laughs> she can, she can yeah,
3: become, I mean, yeah, but but you know, but she's. But let's them. not forget, she is a politician, John, and and you may be yeah. comparing her to the very low bar, which is Jeremy Corbyn, who's got absolutely no sense of humour whatsoever and is a very grumpy That's old man. None.
1: No, that look, uh, that is true. But equally, I mean, Bo- Boris actually isn't funny. Boris is a kind of uh, he, he can bamboozle you with his. Um, Long quotations in Greek from the Iliad and from the the Odyssey. But, you know, he's got a style which which he can be made uncomfortable. Direct questions hurt him, so maybe the forensic skill of a former director of public prosecutions. But I think somebody being funnier than him, uh, wittier than him on the floor of the house, uh, whether that's a low bar or not, could be more discomforting it could politics.
3: be, but the trouble is it's very difficult to be left-wing and funny these days because you have to be so careful about what you say. And she would be accused if she was to be completely eviscerating with it, a bit like Ricky Rick Gervais was last night. You know, you get accused of being, you know, politically incorrect or living in the 70s or something like that, you know. So I think that's partly a problem for her. But also I'm reading in The Times today... The 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 Jess Phillips of this world and Keir Starmer are worried that they're actually going to be stitched up by momentum because people who join the party to want to get them in as leader uh, are not going to have the chance to vote possibly.
1: Oh yeah, look, there'll be an attempt to rig the rules at the Labour Party's the ruling National Executive Committee meeting today, which is considering all the rules and regulations. But the thing about this is, in in the end. You know, there was an attempt to extend the number of people who could join when Owen Smith challenged um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. It was restricted to 48 hours. 120,000 people joined, but they all joined to vote for Jeremy. The thing is, you can't fix the election of the leader if the party wants to change. Mm. So if the younger members do want the chance for Labour government and the kinds of things they want in terms of housing or uh, student debt or pensions or whatever the concerns that they have, if they want a Labour party that's competitive, no amount of fixing the franchise will uh, will stop them choosing a leader who's electable. If they don't want to win, then no amount of um, pandering to them uh, will convince them to vote they'll, they'll vote for a very long mm. family if they want to be
3: pure and in opposition perpetually no quite when you uh, said cheerio on the morning of the uh of december the 13th after the election result had come in you said you were going to go and kind of investigate your lo- your own local party to see where it stood what have you found in terms of the feelings of the of the rank and file if you like because what we still keep hearing from the corbynistas is that you know uh, we won the argument we just didn't win the election
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a a lot of scepticism about that amongst the people I know in Campbell and Peckham. They think, you know, um, the way you win or lose in a general election is by, one, getting more seats and two, forming a government and saying you got more votes than another losing Labour Party did in the past is utterly irrelevant. <laughs> yes, so, it really
2: is. I do th- and I do think,
1: you know, I do think seeing Boris Johnson at uh, number 10 down the street with, with a very big majority has galvanised uh, ordinary Labour Party members. I mean, one, uh, one woman I met on Lordship Lane just stopped and shook her head at me and she's a, she was a convinced Corbynister in the past and now it's just like the scales had fallen right. from her eyes. So I think there has been a shift. Is it big enough? I don't know yet, but um, certainly... So, and that, that opinion poll by Yougov that said that um, Keir Star would beat Rebecca Long Bailey in the election that suggested to me that the that the, that the the mood has shifted towards let's win an, let's win an election rather than um keep on losing.
3: Yes. I think eventually that message will get through. It's just a matter of how quickly. And I'm I'm like you. I suspect it might take slightly longer than this one election. I think it might take maybe two before that can actually happen. One final one, John, because you've worked in Downing Street uh, under a successful Labour Prime (laughs) Minister. Um, What did you make of uh, Dominic Cummings and his uh, job application forms last week, asking for weirdos and geeks to come and join Downing Street? I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was actually asking ordinary people to come and work for a government and be part of something.
1: Look, I, th- I thought it was great. One, the first thing is, it got everybody talking about civil service reform, normally yeah. the dullest, dullest <laughs> topic of all. Right. And it got people thinking, well, my mate could do that, or I could do that. Yeah. Or um, there were lots of conversations in pubs and clubs uh, about about that advert. And I think that's a good thing, because people should think it matters to who runs the country. They should think it matters who gives advice to the prime minister. Um, and, you know... Do we need weirders in, in number 10? Well, look at the success record. It wouldn't be the first time, would it? It <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. But also like it would it, 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 you know when the going gets tough, the weird turn pro, so um, it, Absolutely.
3: One, fine, one final thing, John. Just Phillips said yesterday, basically, that if she wants to be the new leader, she would look at rejoining the European Union. Now, she's not going to win any friends up in the north of England who voted to leave the European Union and who this time around did not vote Labour. She's not going to get them back with that idea.
1: Yeah, she said, um, and I think this, was, this would win her friends in the north, she said... Uh, if Brexit uh, does such serious damage to the car industry, to the steel industry, to our manufacturing sector, to financial services, that it starts to, 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 to do us badly economically, then of course you'd have to say, as the, as the leader of the opposition, they look like we'd be better off joining, rejoining the European Union. I don't think she, she's not saying we should have a second referendum or reverse the decision of the election or the referendum. It's simply when the, when the facts change, as a leader, your mind should change. And if you see... The car industry folding in the U.K., which has been one of the great successes in the last 30 years, uh, the, the turnaround in the car industry started by Thatcher and completed by Brown and Brown and Blair. If, if, that, if that major manufacturing sector starts to disappear because of the trade terms of Europe, then I think it would be right to say, look, in Sunderland we want to keep the car industry. we want to keep it in Derbyshire as well. and, and want to keep it in Swindon. Therefore, we'll do what is necessary, uh, and I think that's probably the right way around to do it. Yeah. So well, you know, might blow the eco planks oh, for yeah. the death
3: of the car industry, but that's another story. John, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. John and Tony Blair's former political secretary, a man who knows a thing or two about running a government, a man who knows a thing or two about running Downing Street as well.
0: Across the UK, online, and on DAB,
3: the
2: Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Jake
3: so many of you joining the YouTube feed that we've got running at the moment lots of you watching as well as listening to Talk Radio and the live stream of course will be going out uh, on Twitter as well uh, we should be on Facebook by tomorrow uh, if all goes well uh, if you don't like looking at YouTube lots of you have got things to say about HS2 of course many of you uh, saying on the, uh, on the YouTube feed that actually um, it's not worth the money fix the potholes fix the roads what is the point uh, of having some kind of bullet train that runs from Birmingham uh, down to London just a little bit quicker than the one that's already there. Now, of course, aficionados of HS2, the people who say that they want HS2, are the ones who say that it will somehow relieve strain on the rest of the network, and people will pay a premium to be on this train. But of course it's not even coming into London anymore in the way that most trains come from the north of England, or the Midlands, into Euston or King's Cross, St Pancras. Instead, it's going to come into Old Oak Common, which is out by White City. Now, it's still London, but it's quite a long way from the centre of London. Unless you're going to the west side of London, uh, i.e. somewhere like Kensington it's not really going to help you but let's talk now uh, to a man that knows a lot more about it than any of us lord tony berkeley uh, former deputy chairman of the independent ochre v- v- view ochre view i should say sorry i can't say that i'll try it again Oka v review into hs2 okay there's the first perrier of the week and it's only 12 18 on monday um lord tony a very good afternoon to you welcome
2: Good afternoon. Thank you. No, thank you for
3: joining us. I'm sorry I was stumbling over the name of the review there.
4: Don't worry.
2: But, you know,
3: I mean, it's not the least of our problems when it comes to HS2, really. I mean, you decided that that you were so fed up that you actually quit the review process.
2: Well, yes, uh, that's not quite true. It it quit me because um, we were told that we all had to finish by the end of October, and our letter of appointment ran out then, and um, they didn't renew it. But uh, when I saw the draft report that they were planning to put out, I... I wasn't very happy with it, so that's why I wrote to them, saying, please take my name off it if it were going on.
3: And what was it that you objected to the most, would you say?
2: There were the the two things I objected to. The first was that they were going to recommend that it was ahead. And I said, the evidence doesn't support this. And anyway, we weren't asked to produce recommendations, and um, perhaps we should give the different options to ministers and let them decide. Well, isn't Uh, that what a
3: review is supposed to do? A review is meant to recommend things, isn't it?
2: Well, it, I mean, the terms of reference did not ask us to recommend. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, some do, some don't. Right. But so that was that one. And then um, they have they planned the whole thing to get the best possible benefits to get round the Treasury rules on these things. And um, they planned them on having 18 trains every hour running on it. That and seems right, like rather well, a lot, doesn't it? Well, I, I then did a bit of inquiry as to where else in the world... Uh, any high-speed line runs 18 trains an hour, uh, an hour, and yes. the answer was no. <laughs> uh, so, 12, 13, 14 is the absolute maximum, and of course they, you know, they fiddled the figures to get a better income forecast, and um, it looks better. Yes, but, well, I mean, surely you know,
3: 18 trains an hour is about one every what? Every three minutes? Less than three minutes, isn't it?
2: Yes, well, it's all right on the um, London Underground. Runs sometimes 25, 30, but that's they're not they're not going at 3 or 400 kph no you know, I mean. well i mean i mean if
3: the if the jubilee line was running that fast it would take from waterloo to stanmore <laughs> for it to stop wouldn't
2: it well, it probably would, but there's also the air pressure in the tunnel, but let's not go there. No, no,
3: let's not, <laughs> let's not get too complicated. But, I mean, seriously, when you talk about something like uh, the taxpayer only getting 60p back for every pound spent, the costs have trebled, benefits have been inflated, people have had their houses basically sort of compulsorily purchased from them and in some cases sold back to them for less money um, uh, so that the, the, the organisation actually loses out. We've got a yep. terrible situation here, where nothing that has gone right, uh, really, since the beginning.
2: Well, I think you're right. I mean, the people with their houses is dead and some of them, I mean, they've been compelled to purchase, but they haven't got the money for them. Oh, well, really? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's um, it, it's a complete chaos. But um, looking at this, looking at the thing is necessary. I think the real problem is it's those who want to get to Manchester from London or Leeds to London or vice versa, obviously they'd like to go a little bit faster. Um, they say that the lines are all full but um, in fact if you go on the, on the local trains around Manchester, Leeds or Birmingham they're even fuller and they're just awful and those are the people who are commuting every day.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, people moan about the commuting into London, some of it good, some of it's bad, but it's it's ten times better than up there. Yeah, of course. And, and,
0: and
3: also, it's, it's, uh, the problem with the train service in this country, as we've seen in very many parts of it, um, is that it's not consistent. The pricing is complicated. You have mm. no way of knowing whether the person sitting next to you has paid the same amount that you have. You have no way of knowing whether you've bought a ticket uh, which can mm. work on all sorts of different methods of travel. I mean, it's really ridiculously
2: complicated. Well, It is. But at least uh, around London, you can get onto most trains. Mm. But some of the trains in you know, around Manchester or Birmingham, you actually can't get on them because they're too full. Right. And I mean, that, that's why I, in my report, I put in the option of spending, shall we say half the amount, 50 billion on sorting out those lines and turning the areas around there which are within an hour's commuting or something into just like London, a proper commuter service, that's what will help the economy right. much more So getting to London half an hour quicker. Well, exactly. You
3: know? And who who do they envisage uh, are the customers of HS2? Because that's another mystery to me. That You know, the people who, genuinely speaking, have to travel on a regular basis between, say, Birmingham and London probably work somewhere in the central part of London rather than anywhere near Old Oak Common, which is where they're going to be coming into on HS2.
2: Well, yes, sir. I mean, the HS2 plan is to go into Euston with a... Rather expensive tunnel from Old Oak Common in Euston, right. uh, in a in a on a route. I'm a civil engineer, so I've looked at this quite hard. And, and frankly, the route, when they approach Euston underground, is ex, is extremely risky ground conditions, really? and you can just see something happening over the network rail lines into Euston and closing up for a year or two. I mean yeah. it just doesn't doesn't bear thinking about. I oh, thought I've rob, th- I thought you were supposed a, to get on, off the let train. Let me, let me just finish with Sorry. Old Oak Common. Uh-huh. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Old Oak Common apart from its name, because it's going to be connected to Crossrail, and on, in three stops, you'll be at Tottenham Court Road. Yes. And if you get on the get on the northern line at Euston, it's three stops to Tottenham Court Road. So it's not a lot of difference. The answer, of course, is to change its name to London Central West or something. Yeah, well, you could try team. that, but that
3: would be a little bit <laughs> underhanded, you see. The thing is, for me, it's not very well to say it's only three stops, but it's a lot further. And the, the yeah. fact is, if you're on a high-speed train to London, you don't want to have yeah. to get off the high-speed train and get on a much smaller, slower train to go the rest of the way, because then technically you haven't been delivered to your destination.
2: Well, that may be true, but then it's even worse at, at, at Birmingham because you end up at a place called Curzon Street, which is a sort of, um, it's, a, it's an empty field at the moment, uh-huh. and then you've got to walk 20 minutes to if you want to go onto a train anywhere else Oh, so you don't go into New Street? Oh, no, no, of course not. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so if you want to go
3: to, say, you know, the centre of Birmingham, you want to go to the Bullring or something, or you want to go to yeah. the Malmaison Hotel, you've got no yeah. chance.
2: Well, you get out and walk. <laughs>
3: yeah, but I'm not I mean, paying extra. I'm not paying extra to walk. I'm paying extra to go faster to my destination. If you're going to take me somewhere where I didn't want to go, then I'm sorry, the deal's off.
2: Uh, you join the club. I mean, <laughs> this is the stupid part about it. Yeah. But it's, you know, um, somebody had a vision, and the vision is 10 years out of date. The costs have gone through the roof, but the vision is not to get to Birmingham or Manchester or Leeds or mm. the other way around a little bit quicker. The vision now, everybody should be, more people should be using rail because of the climate change and everything. Uh, And they can't do it in the regions because the line is so awful, the services are so awful. That's where the money needs spending. And it's very good that Boris Johnson has obviously seen the importance of supporting the railways in the north and the economy and everything because he's the first prime minister for a very long time who's actually looked at it and been said, well, George Osborne tried. But, you know, um, it's too much London-centric at the moment.
3: Well, that's the trouble with an awful lot of things. I'm getting a lot of uh, messages from people saying, sort out, Graham says, sort out rail travel in the Midlands and the North, connect up the country properly, which I think is a good, a good point, very well made. But the good thing, I suppose the only good thing about Old Oak Common is it's quite near Wormwood Scrubs. So you can lock up all of the architects of this ludicrous <laughs> plan and instead of alone loan to continue to be flagrant with our public money.
2: Yes, but as you know well, nobody will be found to be blamed for anything. No. That's the way things go, but Wormwood Scrubs is a great place to suggest, anyway.
0: <laughs> well, what about...
3: Uh, what, how, how do we stop this project now, though? I mean, there surely must be some way of getting the public behind a campaign to say to Boris Johnson, a man who likes to be popular, please do not do this any longer.
2: Well, I think the way to stop it is to say to Boris and his, uh, his colleagues, members of Parliament... You need to invest in the railways in the north and the Midlands, you know, and uh, and he can do it. Network Rail can do it, and we'll help him. But that's where the money has to go. And you don't need to get to London quicker. Uh, You don't need to wreck half the countryside between London and Birmingham for Chilterns, which is really serious. Um, Environmental benefits are, are very bad for HS2. But people need to write to Boris and Twitter and everything else, and say, "Come on, let's spend the money—or so half of the money—we say—on improving the railways in the Midlands, well. so you can get from places like Birmingham to Nottingham, you know, in under an hour and a half, yeah. or something, you know." Well, you can't even uh, get.
3: Apparently, I'm told you can't now even get from Leeds or Manchester to Newcastle uh, in any way, shape, or form, which is which is which is quick.
2: Well, that's very interesting because when we were doing our uh, discussions with the re- people in the regions about this report, I recall somebody in Leeds, whether um, was lead Leeds or the head of transport or something, asked, they said, well, the most important thing is to get a better railway services for commuters around Leeds. they mm. quite right. I said, OK, if, be, if your passengers want to go further afield, where's your first destination, the most important one? Thinking it would be London. He said, no, it's Le- It's Newcastle. yeah. yeah. And, you, and there's no service to speak of there. You it's know. incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. Well, it's it's because everybody from the Department of Transport and some politicians don't think that London is the only place that matters.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, it's that's, time that's we changed that's, 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 change
3: that's how Labour lost the election as well, because they didn't think that anybody outside of London would vote anything but Labour until they well, realised, actually, that's completely changed. How about this, though, uh, Lord Berkeley, for a little bit of a sort of addendum to all me, of
2: this? Call me Tony, come on. Tony, all right,
3: Tony, look, look at this. Industry figures, this is rail industry figures, right? This is a story about the rail timetables, which are apparently being produced too late to give to anybody uh, meaningfully who wants to travel anywhere. Uh, industry figures show the timetable published on November the 1st contained more than 6,000 errors affecting services on 19 networks. I mean, you know, who's in charge of the clattering train?
2: Well, um, I don't work for the railways, as you probably realise. No. Um, uh, the people in charge, there's a lot of different people in charge, but it all comes back to people appointed by the Department of Transport. After all, Network Rail are owned by the Department of Transport. The train operators, most of them have franchises that are led by the Department of Fran- Transport. Uh, you know, and they're the people that should, that should get it right.
3: Well, it's not, it's um, not fit for purpose, as far well as I can see, Tony.
2: think it's bad, you know, and it's happened, it's happened again. Um, yes. It shouldn't happen, uh, but that is something which I think and I hope is going to get better in the future. <laughs> Network Rail has a new chief executive who is shaping up very well, um, and we've got to have a new we've got a new minister, and um, I'm hoping that it'll really improve. But people have still got to keep keep on writing in, complaining when it's wrong, and keeping their expectations up. Right. You know, as to what as what what they expect to have. And they wanna when they would get on the train they expect to be able to get a seat most of the time, but certainly be able to get on it even if they got a stand.
3: Absolutely. Well, listen, we must talk again, Tony. Lord Berkeley, I call him Tony, you can call him Lord Berkeley. Um, He is the man uh, who's telling us that this is a complete and utter waste of time. We know it's a waste of time. We must tell Boris Johnson it's a waste of time. Surely we have to get that. Best uh, message of the day on YouTube so far on the stream from Stephen who said, forget about the suit and tie, Uh, get yourself in some shorts and a t-shirt on a walking machine uh, and you can get fit while producing the greatest radio show of all time. It's not a bad idea. I'm not sure you want to See me in shorts and a t-shirt. We may get to that in the summer. We shall see.
0: Across the UK, online, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk Radio.